welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Amy Chase, co-host of Heroic Hearts. In this episode, Walter and I discuss the pivotal transition from the ordinary to the extraordinary world, which in the hero's journey is called crossing the threshold. Our heroine, St. Joan, crosses this threshold when she leaves her village of Domremy to travel to Vaucouleur. There, she'll need to win over the local magistrate and assemble a company of soldiers to begin her quest to rescue France. The excitement is just beginning, so let's jump in. Hey, Walter. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Doing great. And we want to say hello to everyone listening to us. We're back for another episode of Heroic Hearts. All right. So I'll get us started with our enchanted moment. My enchanted moment this week is more about an enchanting encounter that I had. Ooh. So, <laughs> and and it's, it, it demonstrates, I hope, how we can have these enchanting moments in the most ordinary of circumstances. So yesterday I had to get some lab work done and my lab tech, as she was drawing my blood, she remarked that, I hope this isn't too gory for anyone, but she remarked (laughs) that the blood looked like it was coming, it was uh, forming the shape of a heart in the test tube. And she's like, oh, look, it's a heart. (laughs) And uh, so I thought that was cute. And she proceeded to tell me how how she she really likes hearts. She she loves hearts and she has heart jewelry. And then she showed me a picture she had recently taken of, uh, it was the sky, it was a cloudy sky, but there were two holes in the clouds and the sun was shining through. And she had taken the picture just for, for that. But when she looked at the picture later and expanded it, it was actually perfectly, two perfectly formed hearts. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so, and for her, it was so meaningful because she was grieving the loss of two people she loved. And so it was just oh. a, a message of hope. And I, I was, she was enchanted by that experience and I was enchanted by her enchantment, if that makes sense. Wow. And that, that's, <laughs> that's uh, uh, almost beyond enchantment. That's yeah. uh, providential and, and- Exactly. And the fact that she chose to share it with me and risk, you know, me saying like, oh, well, that's just coincidence or, you know, I, I could have downplayed her experience, but she she risked sharing something that was meaningful to her uh, with me, who was a, a complete stranger. And in doing so, we made a connection. And then I got to tell her that, well, I have a, a podcast, which is about which is called the heroic hearts and it's about healing broken hearts. And so we, you know, it was just, it was a a brief experience of, of sharing with each other, you know, two strangers, but coming together in a meaningful way. And, um, and now we're no longer strangers. So I hope, I hope Jeannie, if you're listening to this podcast, you get to hear me tell your story and um, just want to say how much it, uh, it meant to me. That's, that's such a great story. Uh, Two hearts, heroic hearts, and uh, her broken heart and hearts, yeah. uh, that is an amazing connection. Wow, very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> well, <So>. <laughs> my, my, well, my enchanting moment, uh, not, it's not quite that, <laughs> a couple of hearts, but um, yesterday we did have a, an enchanting moment. 
and people in the, in our listeners may not fully appreciate this depending on where they live, but it was 67 degrees in, in Wisconsin. And now you, you, for those of you that live up North in the mid upper Midwest and the great lakes, you know what that means. So I can't really appreciate that much in Southern California, but we got out and, and uh, we went over to uh, kind of a resort area that we, we like and took a walk along the Wisconsin river and it's, it's uh, beautiful. They have these incredible lookout points uh, over the Wisconsin River. So it was, believe it or not, the warmest day of the year so far that we've had. So, hey, hit the 60s. We are out there. And uh, so we took a nice walk along the uh, Wisconsin River and that in, in feeling the warmth. And that is always a, a really nice enchanting moment for us. Well, I don't envy the winters you all have there, except for this one thing, that when the weather starts to change and spring is appearing, it is, it's such a marvelous experience because of what you've suffered through the last few months. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I really like it. I'm, I'm definitely a Great Lakes kind of a, of a guy, and I know it gets... Um, People talk about the winters and I always say, yeah, wait till the summers hit though, <laughs> but, uh, where we have, we have beautiful summers, but you know, it is true. And I was thinking of that also, uh, just the, the, the four seasons. I like four seasons because I do think the seasons speak to us and I think they're there for a reason. And it is true. It can be very dreary during January and February. Um, and it's dark and cold, but then when that, when everything breaks and you start to feel that warmth. It, it, it really has an impact on you, I think, spirit, not only spiritually, but just physically and mentally. So, yes, definitely yeah. an enchanting moment. I, I love the seasons. <laughs> and here's something unique, Walter. I once had the experience of going through all four seasons in a period of three months. Oh, my. And it happened like this. I, <laughs> when I was in the Navy, I, uh, our ship was doing a home port change. So we started in Virginia uh, during the winter, and we sailed around South America and came up and arrived in in California. And so during that time, as we went as we went around South America, we went through the other seasons. And then when we came back up, so we went through, um, I guess, summer and fall, and then I came back up, and it was spring in California. So oh, wow. that was uh, I, I got all four seasons in a period of three months. Oh, that's that's not many people can say that. No, I don't think too many people can say that. That's fantastic. But the seasons are wonderful and they do speak to us. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's marvelous. And you know, part of what gets you through winter in the dark of winter is the anticipation of spring. Yes. And, um, so when you finally feel it, it's, it's great. Now we have to get the leaves out and the flowers out. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, and right now we have to, we have to get to our prayers. So why don't you lead us in that? All right. I will lead us in our heroic hearts prayer in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Prayer of the Heroic Hearts. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you, make us ready to suffer, to show our love, and like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week, Walter, we were talking about mentors and it was a great discussion about how St. Joan had her heavenly mentors, but then how she has been a mentor for you and just the different mentors that we've had in our lives. 
And that was that was our questions, our reflective questions. So we're just going to look at those um, quickly. And the questions we had about mentors were, describe a time that a mentor prepared you for a coming challenge. How did this person share their wisdom and hope with you? And then are you in a position to mentor others? And what can you share of your life experience that could help someone through a difficulty? And I know you had a few thoughts on that. Well, sure. And, you know, I'll look at the one, are you in a position to, to mentor others? I'm, I'm actually an instructor. I've been, I've been a college and university level instructor uh, for about what, 12, 13 years, I guess. And um, it is an extremely rewarding thing to be able to not just instruct people, but to help them and provide, uh, you know, provide mentorship and, and to uh, guide them on, on, uh, on the path. And what I find in terms of sharing life experiences that it, what, what I find is people really appreciate hearing about your challenges, not just your victories and all the wonderful things that you did, uh, but to hear about your challenges and how you overcame them and also to listen with an em- em- empathic, empathetic ear uh, to other people. And so, uh, you know, I, I find listening when it comes to mentorship, listening is actually as much or more important than the talking of the mentorship. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. that's kind of my experience. So how about you? Well, just in the military, mentorship is a very important um, activity that we do because you're always training the people that are coming up behind you to be able to take your place because someday you will not be there. So I've had many great mentors over the course of my career. I've also frequently been in the position of mentoring others. And mm. it's it's always a rewarding experience. And sometimes, many times it leads to some lifelong friendships as well. So yeah. we'll move on to this week's motif for the Heroic Hearts journey, which is the crossing the threshold into the extraordinary world. If the ordinary world is the place of our everyday concerns, then what is the extraordinary world? We've been talking about it and you've done a great job of showing us how Mark Twain demonstrates both the ordinary and extraordinary worlds in his novel about Joan of Arc. I like to think of it as a place of mystery, a place of danger and enchantment, and finally a place of transcendence. Yeah, it's a place where you really step out. And I think Joan's story is truly a, a, a lesson for us uh, in terms of when you look at Joan, particularly when you look at the first chapter out of the second book. And it's, re- it's a relatively short chapter, but what it's, it's really about is Joan's de- departure. And I think it's really easy to just glance over that chapter until you think about it just a little bit. Now think about a young 17 year old uh, peasant woman who is getting ready to leave based off of this uh, heavenly call. And it's, that is not an easy thing. So we talk about the challenges that we have in terms of accepting change and we don't like change and we're, we're afraid to step out. And you know, all these things people say, well, how do you think that would feel? We almost take it for granted that, oh, yes, well, Joan received a call from heaven and now she's leaving for Vaucouleur. I think it would just be an immensely, unbelievably challenging uh, situation when you talk about that. I think it's significant that 
for Jones crossing the threshold, as with a lot of um, the, the hero's journey stories, she's actually, she actually has to travel. You know, yeah. she's, she's got to leave her village and, and go off to another town that she's unfamiliar with people that she doesn't really know. And that, that process, it's, it's a, it's a liminal space, you know, between the familiar and the unfamiliar. There's, there's that, that phase of moving through towards that extraordinary world. Well, it's a great point. It's experiential. It's not just something mental in your head. It's not just uh, a new way of thinking uh, to see if maybe you can improve your behavior, which is, which is good, but this is a truly experiential uh, moment. It's a moment of leaving friends and family mm-hmm. and knowing that you, you may not be back to see them again. And, and also Amy, don't forget that she had already been to Vokular some six, nine months earlier yes. and been handily rejected. She was mocked and ridiculed. She was, uh, her uncle was told she, that she should be slapped and sent home. So now she's getting ready to venture out again into that same territory. <laughs> I don't think it would be easy for most of us now, much less when we were 17 years old. <laughs> oh, indeed. I, I'd like to read that section from Mark Twain's novel, and it's in chapter one of book two. So we're in book two now. Joan took one long look back upon the distant village and the fairy tree and the oak forest and the flowery plain and the river, as if she was trying to print these scenes on her memory so that they would abide there always and not fade, for she knew she would not see them anymore in this life. Then she turned and went from us, sobbing bitterly. It was her birthday and mine. She was 17 years old. And so that that's the Sir de Conte telling us a uh, uh, narrating this this part of the story but it really gets to um, the heart of what it means to leave to cross the threshold from your old life into the unknown well I, and I've said this to friends in the past about Joan that I I think that the voc, the vocular experience is something that is far more significant and dramatic than most people think. And I challenge people to think a lot more about it. It's it's very easy to see the going to Vaucouleur, uh, she was rejected and she goes back home. Now she's she's finally leaving on her venture and she has to go back because mm-hmm. uh, Robert uh, Baudricourt is, that is the answer. The, the one who rejected her is the only place she can go to get and help. Can can you just remind our, our listeners quickly, or if we have people just joining us for the first time, why Joan is going to Vaucouleur and what she hopes to accomplish by um, speaking to Robert Baudricourt? Right. And it, this is a, a sort of a significant uh, part of the whole geopolitical conflict in the Hundred Years' War is that effectively Dom Remy and, and the Vaucouleur, which are in the northeast quadrant of, of France, close to what we call Germany today, which would have been the Holy Roman Empire back then, uh, were islands of loyalty to Charles VII uh, is in terms of France. It was surrounded by enemy Burgundian, Anglo-Burgundian. So we have to remember the English were in an alliance with the French Burgundians. It gets confusing because you have French fighting French in a civil war, the Burgundians fighting Charles VII's uh, Armagnacs, and you have them, uh, because of that bitterness, they get into an alliance with the English, 
And the Prince of Burgundy says, I, I would rather the English have France than my opponent, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in France. So there, there's this going on. So the bottom line is they're in the middle of enemy territory. But Vaucouleur, like Dom Remy, is an island devoted to Charles VII and loyal. So she's got to get to Vaucouleur. She, she, that's the only place she's going to get the, the support, the, the men at arms, the uh, horses and things like that. So she has to go back to where she had been rejected. And, and Robert uh, de Baudricourt is sort of the governor, the captain of, of that. And presumably her voices have told her that she will get this support, even though there are no indications from his, from Robert Baudricourt's actions that she will. Well, it's another remarkable thing because when we talk about faith, how easily are we discouraged? I don't know about you, but sometimes I can get up from my morning prayers and just feel like a just a spiritual, right? There's just this spiritual strength, like I'm ready for the anything. And then it's sort of, you know, obstacles hit. And next thing you know, you start wondering and you start doubting. And Joan was faced with really big time challenges. But to your point, she always kept the faith. If, if her voices told her, she, di- she did not doubt, she knew. So she would walk right back into the fire and say, he will give me. And and it wasn't like she went to Vaucouleur uh, after sadly uh, leaving her family. It wasn't like she went there and all of a sudden uh, Baudricourt came out and said, oh, I'm so glad you're back. I've changed my mind. I'm, you know, he still rejected her. So she goes back in and she's still rejected. And he now let's 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 give Baudricourt a little bit of a break here. If you are the leader of that, you're in the middle of enemy territory. You've been you've been being attacked, right? And you have walls you have to protect. You're a pretty serious person. This is pretty serious business. This is not a little game to have somebody come in and start talking like this. So a little, you know, a little bit of a break for Robert uh, Robert de Baudricourt because you know he's in that he's in that position. So he truly is being, I think, um, uh, judicious. I, mean, I think he's he's doing what he needs to do. How many how many of us, if we were in that position, would say, "Oh, hi, you're a 17 year old girl." Sure, let me believe everything you say. So he so he challenges her again. Now, one of the things that's interesting that you always hear in the stories of Joan of Arc is the exorcism. So one of the things he wants to know is 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 she like possessed by demons or what is this? So she brings a priest to do a um, sort of a exorcism. And the priest says, oh, she's okay. And then she's disappointed because she tells the priest, she said, I went to confession to you earlier and I told you everything. And I'm very, very disappointed. Of course. And so, but, you know, the priest is like, oh, you know, if you watch some of the movies, they do, they depict like the priest is like, you know, it's like pointing the Baudricourt going, you know, (laughs) look, I had to do this. So, so that, but even that, that didn't convince uh, Baudricourt. Uh, But the famous thing that did convince him finally was Joan said, you are wasting a lot of time. And uh, uh, Orléans is in trouble. And she said, there has been a disaster, a military disaster. So this is really important. This very day. Yeah, this very day. And this is very important. And Mark Twain brings it out. It was the famous Battle of the Herrings. And so Mm -hmm. not to go into detail about that, but there's a famous battle. It was the Scottish and the French, which were allied. And they were trying to intercept around Orléans, where the English had seized Orléans. They were trying to intercept a huge convoy of food that had a lot of fish because it was Lent. And and so they call it the Battle of the Herrings. And, and even, long story short, the French and the Scottish lost badly. It was a humiliating defeat. And 
that very day, Joan told Robert that that, that very day there had been a serious military defeat and Orleans was in, in terrible trouble. Now, this wasn't the age of Internet, of the newspaper or telegraph or anything like that. There was no way for anyone to know what happened that day on uh, in an area that was literally a week away by by travel. So Baudricourt and, and travel through enemy territory if, if you even make it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Baudricourt says it will be a week before the messengers get here. So if a week from now we get messengers and they say what you said, I'll go. And sure enough, oh, she waited a week and sure enough, the messengers came and they said exactly what she said. And, and you know, Baudricourt was you know, I, think, I think that's what you call eating your words. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was at that point, uh, and to and to his to his credit, uh, he fulfilled. He said yeah. that's okay. And again, I, I think maybe we step back a little bit and say it must have been very difficult for him to do that. Remember, everybody that's agreeing with Joan, we look back and say, how could you not mm-hmm. have Joan of Arc? You should agree with everything she says. They didn't know that at the time. All they knew was she was a seventeen-year-old peasant girl so but there was a prophecy that was circulating around this time do you want to talk to that a little bit that's an an interesting little part of the story yeah that was another big thing was the um uh, prophecy of merlin from however many you know years years back but it was about the prophecy said that france would be lost by a woman and would be saved by a maiden so a virgin maiden Mm -hmm. and uh so this all fit now you can say what you want but it fit uh, Queen Isabeau of Bavaria, uh, the, the wife, the, Charles's mother, the wife of the Mad King, uh, who basically uh, signed the Treaty of Troy we talked about before, which effectively handed France over to England as soon as the, uh, the uh, Henry V had their, their child. So she effectively sold off uh, France uh, in the Treaty of Troy. And so she was seen as, <laughs> she was not very popular among the French Armagnac. So she was seen as the the woman who lost France. And then all of a sudden, here comes a young maiden. And, and, and it was supposed to be from the area of Lorraine, which Lorraine, I believe, was on the border of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, cl- close to that area. So she she sort of fit the definition of from the area of Lorraine. So here comes a, a, a maiden. So this had the crowd, this had this has people stirred up. And, and we'll find as we go forward that this this message carried forward. So not to, not to jump ahead, but when she gets to Orléans, we're going to find out that some of the key people at Orléans had heard about the possible fulfillment of this prophecy that had I, everybody excited. I think it eventually helps to persuade Charles VII's mother-in-law, who who was Jones, one of her first supporters. Um, yes. Yes. And, and, yes. And she, she um, uh, when they eventually get to, to Chinon, she um, she will support Joan and, and also just an admiration of Joan's courage and everything that we're talking about. She recognized, uh, you know, the, the power in that. So, so there's a, there's a lot of action at Vaucouleur. And I've always told friends of mine, we don't, don't skip over that too quickly. It's, it's, we all want to get to the battle of Orleans. That's the most exciting thing, but there's a lot of stuff going on. But I find it remarkable in contemplating Joan's life how anyone could endure. Most of us probably would have never gotten out of the gate on, <laughs> yes. on, on that. But she endured. She truly believed. And she was not going to give up. She had the most tenacious uh, perseverance. 
Well, I, I know for myself that my, my pride would have just been up once my reputation was being questioned, you know, whether my purity or my, um, it, you know, whether, whether I was uh, demon possessed, I just would have been like, forget you, you know, like, I oh, don't oh, yeah. yeah. Most of us in our pride would be, how dare you, how dare you think uh, that about me? And, and, and Joan was just always to, to her, uh, what it meant was you're wasting time. Yes. Like, I mean, yes. we can do this all day. We can set up another exorcism tomorrow, whatever you want to do, but you are just simply wasting time. And uh, finally, uh, now, interestingly, too, this won the heart of uh, an important person in the scheme, which is John Demetz. And he comes up in the story. He's one of them that will now take her from Vaucouleur through enemy territory. Uh, but he remains a lifelong devotee, even even to the very end after she's executed and, and 25 years later, his testimony, um, he was completely smitten by, by Joan in a holy way. He, he saw very quickly a very holy person and someone that, um, that believed. And, you know, it, it really is important to have valuable uh, first believers, you know, to build that team around you that build, that, that believe in you. And uh, John Demetz was one of those. I, I love how he swears his fealty to her in, in that noble sense of a knighthood. I don't know if that was fictionalized for the book or if something like that really happened. But uh, the impression I get scene. was that it, it was the, the way things were done, it, that, it, that it was that way. And that it was, see, one thing we have to also remember is that chivalry was not totally dead at that time, it was beginning to disappear, uh, unfortunately. And we'll see that later in, in Joan's life where she, and this has been brought up in different books where Joan does behave by the rules of chivalry. And there are rules of chivalry. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the, the fact that the English took um, the, uh, the Duke of Orleans prisoner uh, was a violation of chivalry. That's not the way, there's a way to do war in Christendom. Yes. Uh, you wow. know, you, you might fight among Catholic nations, but there's a way to do it. And they had, they violated. So the laws of chivalry were kind of breaking down, but not in but not entirely. And John DeMet still had that um, uh, still had that sort of noble uh, uh, mentality. But I think importantly was he believed her. And, and again, he, he you know, he, this is the point where he told her or she told him, you know, that it's my Lord. Mm -hmm. And um uh, and, and doesn't that take great courage and humility for him to, to recognize in her uh, something special and, and not just special, but something with a divine purpose? Yeah, well, he's, he's an interesting person because he's also the one that came up to her and was uh, kidding with her. So while she's trying to get uh, Baudricourt's support, he comes up and, and says, uh, well, so what's what's going to happen? Are we all, aren't we all going to be English before long? You know, like it's pretty much over, isn't it? And that's a true story. That's a true thing. And she was, you know, undeterred. And she said, and she made the comment that no one can save France except for me. And and the thing about it, that sounds like who would say that? Right, right. But for her, <laughs> that was a matter of fact statement. She wasn't bragging, or she wasn't. She was just simply saying, "I'm telling you." So the, I think the 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 hard part for Joan was she is just trying to tell them in Vaucouleur, would you just listen to me? I just need to get to the king 
and we can do all the car- we can have a carnival show we can do exorcisms we can do whatever you want but you just got to get me there she was very matter of fact and, and Twain says that it was her earnestness that eventually won him over he could he could see her sincerity he could see her stead- the steadfastness of her conviction yeah. and uh, and it was that along with um, I guess just something he saw in her that helped helped uh, win him over to her yeah she made the famous uh, uh, quote that she would she would get to the king even if she had to walk and wear herself to her knees. Yes. Yes. You know? So, uh, so that so that so that was a very important part of the of the deal. So with with all that going on, then she finally gets the support that she needs, particularly when the messengers come back and validate what she had said. And so now she's moving on. And- yes, and then at this part of the story is quite fun in in my opinion because <laughs> we we get to we we have the return of the character the paladin oh i Tell love us how he comes back into the story and, oh, and what it contributes what a great ch- chapter and it's one of those that is a it's a fictional story that tells a true story you know like we talked about before this is a, 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 one of these genius uh, techniques that mark twain uses because he's telling us something and he's challenging us with something very true with, with the Paladin. So she takes a, so they finally leave Okalur. Now it's important for listeners to remember, I know we've mentioned it before, but the Northern part and the, and the, and the Northwestern part of France have been taken over by the Anglo Burgundian Alliance. So France is effectively much smaller. It's, it, it's really South of the Loire river is really what France is. Uh, and with with the exception of certain other territories, but France was probably half or a third of what it what it was before. So uh, there, I would say probably a third or so or half of the trip now to go. So where's she going? She's going to send the message, get the message to Charles the Seventh, the Dauphin, who is in her mind the rightful. Uh, the rightful heir of France. The the rightful heir of France. So she's got to get. So so what is the whole purpose? She's she's trying to get there to say that I need to help you. I need to help crown you. I need to come. Orleans in trouble. I need to free Orleans, and I need to get you to to Reims to uh, be crowned. That, that's what she's she's got to go to the Dauphin to to say. And and l- another thing to remember is who, who's the Dauphin. He is weak. He is um, somewhat duplicitous. He's he's basically hanging out in Shannon at the castle, waiting to get clobbered by the English is effectively what it is. That country is so demoralized. Their army is so demoralized. The king is the Dauphin is demoralized. He is he is looking for escape. He is either going to go to uh, Scotland, an ally, or he's going to run to Spain, one, one or the other. So he is planning his escape. So he's they, planning to leave his people and planning, yeah. So this is, and yeah, this is the, this is the state of the nation and the state that she's running into is to say, no, you have to follow me and I, I'm going to free this country and I'm going to crown you king. So it's just an unbelievably remarkable story. So about half or third of the, of the way is through enemy territory. So they take off. So they travel at night and because they don't want to be seen during the day. And of course, there are bandits, there are Burgundian uh uh, soldiers and uh, you know all this so they travel and she's in the company of about what 20 25 soldiers? yeah and i think in in it's twain might exaggerate that number the numbers that i always heard were smaller i heard numbers of maybe 
six or eight or 10 at the most. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, so uh, Twain's numbers may be a little bit exaggerated, but it's not, it's not a huge uh, army that she, she's going basically with a, a troop and um, she, and, and yes, with all, all men. And so she, and they're traveling at night and it's cold. It's uh, we're talking uh, February. Sure. And, and so it's cold and, and it's dangerous. And so they're traveling and they'll sleep during the day and they'll travel it at night. And so it's kind of a remarkable story of how they get through. So of about a, what, a 10 day, it's about 300 and I'm going to say 50 miles from Vaucouleur to Chinon in, in terms of our, and it take, takes them like 10 days uh, to, to get there. And so, and they have to fight some skirmishes uh, along the way. So this is very dangerous, very difficult, very cold and dreary, sleeping on the ground uh, type of, uh, of an experience. But to your point about the, the paladin, is uh, this is a remarkable development. And, and now what we see is sort of a distinction between Joan's character and, and the paladin. So remember, the paladin's been a lifelong friend from Dom Raimi. He's a braggart. He's, he's kind of a giant of a guy, one of those big guys. He's a braggart. Big talker, big talker, uh, but not a lot of action. All talk and no action. And he, he, even when he was back in Dom Raimi, he was talking about how he was going to, boy, if I were in the war, they would really know who I am. He was and a legend in his own mind. He was a legend in his own mind. You better believe it. And he, and he still is. So so, so anyway, they're, they're traveling along the way, and, and Sewer uh, hears uh, all this moaning and groaning and, and from somebody in the back, and they and they finally, uh, he finally figures out that at the last minute, they didn't know it, but uh, the, the paladin and Noel Rangesson, his buddy who likes to kind his of- side, His sidekick, not really a friend. They, they enjoy antagonizing each other. Who, like, who likes to antagonize him and, and everything uh, for the fun of it, kind of got thrown in the mess at the last minute. So they, they were on the journey and jo- Joan- Joan knew prophetically they were going to be there, but uh, nobody had seen them join. But it's a humorous story about uh, the paladin and uh, how when they take a rest, uh, the sewer finally uh, finds the paladin and, and, and Noel and how they were hurting and aching. But the paladin's bragging about, uh, you know, I... You know, I couldn't wait to join this. I ran with all my might and I, I begged to be able to join this, this when group. He, when he was really pressed into service. Right. The story. <laughs> you come, yeah, you come to find out they, they had to literally throw him in. He didn't want to, he didn't want to go. So the, the, uh, you know, so the Paladin is this very uh, much of this, this sort of all talk, uh, no action. We find out from his sidekick, uh, Noel, that during some of the, during the skirmishes that the paladin would climb trees. So and then, danger. Oh, but, but, but yes. But when you talk to him later, he would tell you about how they've never seen someone like me. I, I took, and, and so they had to say, well, why didn't we see you? How come we didn't see you uh, defeating the enemy? Oh, because I went to the front. I went up where the battle really, I didn't stay where you are at the back. I went to the front to slay the enemy. And in the meanwhile, he was hiding in trees. So, the, the thing that I love about this whole character, for those of you reading along, you'll read this whole humorous chapter, is it, it, there's a lot more there than just Mark Twain telling a, a funny story. I, I really believe that what he's doing is he's setting up in a, a, a very uh, exaggerated way. He's setting up a contradistinction between the character of Joan 
And he's challenging us because to some degree, we may not be exactly like the, I hope we're not exactly like the, but, uh, you know, I think sometimes we have to challenge ourselves, you know, how much, how much are we, how much do we walk the walk? How much are we all talk and, and no action? And is there some paladin that's in us? And, you know, there, so it's a, it's a very humorous kind of contradistinction between Joan uh, and the, and we're going to continue to, to see this. Uh, but he's in his mind, he is slaying the enemy. They, they will, they will run in fear when they see me that's in his mind. But when it comes to, to action, he, he's, he goes and hides. <laughs> I, I really like how Twain sets that up and makes it so humorous because the reality is I think most of us can't see ourselves in the, the character of the paladin. For me, it's, you know, the, the way you can look at your own actions and see only good in your own actions and find fault in everyone else's, you know, like that, that is kind of that paladin characteristic for me. And so by making it humorous, I can laugh at the story and I can laugh at myself and not take offense at it. And then hopefully look at, look to Joe now and say, well, but you know, that's who I want to be like. Well, and that was, I, when I first read this, oh goodness, 14 years ago, I think was the first time I, I read this. Uh, that was the thing that I remember impressed me was that I did identify with the paladin, not not in such an exaggerated way, but yes, I, I did. And it I think that was one of the powerful, more powerful tools I found in the book was I begin going along with Joan, identifying a lot as the paladin. And that's why I think this is such an, a beautifully done you know, chapter. It's a beautiful tool that Mark Twain introduces because it allowed me to carry on as not just reading a story about some characters doing things. It kind of got me in the story. And, and I, I started, I, I couldn't help. I had to turn my, I had to turn my face from the paladin and going, oh, that's ridiculous. And then I would go, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Maybe I am a little bit like, and, and we're, oh, we're not done with the paladin. You, no. we're, we're, he's going to be in the tavern uh, regaling everyone with his, his stories of victory and, and all that. And a big, big shot in his own mind. And, and, and so I was able to walk through the story with Joan going, I love Joan and I really admire Joan and she's for real. And here's this character. And I wonder Wow. <laughs> so it, it's a, it's a, it's a, what we call it a, an examination of conscience. Oh yes. It it's, is. it's a tool of it for an examination of conscience. So it's, 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 it's a really fun chapter. Uh, that, yeah. and, and a very fun way to do a, an examination of conscience. Yeah. Um, well, then there's one more just really fun scene. Fun. I, that's a, that's a poor choice of words, <laughs> but, but there's a great scene at the end of chapter five where it's it's humorous, but it also demonstrates Jones her both her her virtue and her brilliance, really. <laughs> and that is when the their group encounters as just as they're coming to the end of their travels, um, the last night they encounter the enemy. They encounter um, the enemy forces, and the captain mistakes Joan for one of his own men. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, yeah. So the the story of the uh, maiden has gotten out. And this is what they feared. And this is why they were traveling at night. So they're still in enemy territory. And um, naturally, the Burgundians and the Anglo-Burgundians need to find this alleged 
maiden and stop her. So again, this will be a reoccurring theme is what we're going to find is she's a hero, a saint and a maiden on one side, and she's a witch and an evil person on the other side. And so we're, we're already starting to see this development that is is going to emerge later. So they're trying to find this this maiden. And so one captain sent a group out to go look because they heard that they were on the trail. And now remember, it's nighttime. That's why they're traveling is nighttime. And Joan has one of those, you know, hooded uh, the visor yeah. thing. And so they come up and you can't really see much uh, at, at night. So the captain comes up and thinks that's his men and says, well, how, you know, what'd you find? Like, well, we would, they're back there. <laughs> they're, they're, did, you, well, did you see the maid? I guess I saw yeah, her. <laughs> I, I saw her. Well, did, are they, are they, are they packing up like they're going to move? Well, no, not at the moment. They, at the time we looked at them, they weren't planning to go anywhere. Uh, they're still there. So now that's just when, now that's just when we were there. I don't know what's, what's going on now. And so they, they go through this routine where it's like, well, very good captain, you'll be rewarded. Now, now don't forget, there's a bridge where we're worried about a bridge that has to be crossed because if the Burgundians destroyed the bridge, it would make it difficult to impossible for Jones team to continue their progress in the direction they're going uh, to the King. They would certainly have to reroute. So they're worried about the bridge. So what they do is they end up walking past uh, getting being mistaken identity, they're able to walk past the Burgundian army, which was rather large. I think the sewer says there must have been a hundred people. And they walk past everyone thinking that they're part of their Burgundian group. Uh, and they're going to go run back to go find the maid where they were, were told. And so Joan then leads her group over the bridge. And then what does she do? She destroys the bridge after she gets over so that now the Burgundians can't get over the bridge to go follow them. So I, uh, I would have just loved to have been a fly on the wall when that captain realized <laughs> the mistake he had made and that she had outwitted him. <laughs> oh, oh, exactly. And, you know, the thing you talk about with her uh, virtue and her, uh, you know, and Mark Twain makes a, a big deal uh, about this is her laboring over whether what she did was was truly virtuous. She was concerned as to whether she was sinfully deceitful. Uh, now she did not lie. Nothing, as we would say, a lie. Like she did not make any false statements, but she yeah. knew that the person was laboring under a false interpretation. Right. And she yeah. let him. Yeah. And she was, she was, she was kind of worried about that. So her conscience, now most of us would just be laughing and carrying on and, and going, what, how brilliant we are that we pulled that off. But, uh, she actually, uh, but that's very uh, uh, reflect, uh, very common with with Joan. I mean, and this is true in very real life with Joan. Uh, that uh, when she eventually, when she goes in the battle, she has a priest that goes with her, and Joan confesses daily. And so, in the so Joan, when she's able to, goes to mass daily and confesses daily. So this is not just a a story. She's a very conscientious person. And she doesn't want to have a victory in, that would in any way reflect any sinful behavior. So, uh, I mean, you know, think about it. You're talking about war. Mm-hmm. And you're talking yeah. about going into war. And how do you go into war and do it in a way that doesn't displease God in terms of your virtue? And, you know. I, I can say personally that those that 
those have been questions that I've struggled with during my own military career and, and probably also led to my eventual retirement. But uh, yeah, just the, you know, there, there, there's just war theory and, and there, there's all of that, but then in practice, it's very difficult. And so I, the fact that she also faced those questions uh, and still comported herself with, with total integrity, I think is really inspirational to me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, and you would be the one that, uh, you know, would understand that in, in real life. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. But, you know, then, then finally, we have to kind of point out that she eventually do eventually get into, uh, into friendly territory and they do make their way. They, they stop at Firbois. And that's, we're going to come back to that because that's a, that's going to be a famous place where she's going to find her sword eventually at St. Catherine of Firbois, where the, the crusaders who actually brought back uh, relics of, of St. Catherine established her. So it's very interesting that she stopped there and then they had to go on. So in, in kind of closing out this section of reading, uh, what we do find is an a very um, another challenge. So, do you think that when she gets to Charles VII, she's going to be welcomed as, oh my goodness, here comes the seventeen-year-old maiden? She, she's up against it everywhere she goes. So, there are a couple of reasons that she's she gets to she does finally get to Chinon. They have to stay, you know, outside and get permission. And uh, th- there are some there are some challenges in that. One of the huge challenges is that the people around Charles, his advisors, his advisors are terrible people to say. They can't be trusted. They only care. They know they're defeated and the king's in the, and, and Dauphin's going to run. So all they're thinking about is how do I, how do I enhance my position? Yeah, They're only motivated by self-interest. Yeah. Just completely by self-interest. The idea of saving France is ridiculous to them. And but but then of course they talk nicely, you know, talk about duplicitous, they talk nicely. So they're they are treacherous people. And they really don't want any of this nonsense about a maid a maiden coming to save. Charles is just being Charles. He's just weak and 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 kind of timid. So there's there's a she runs into a struggle of actually being able to, uh, you know, get to see Dauphin, which she, she eventually will, which we'll read about um, coming up. But she runs into this huge challenge. And I love the scene at the end of our reading for this section when um, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the Dauphin's mother-in-law is the one that believes we should listen to Joan. And she's such a brave, you know, girl, and we should listen to her. So what, what does... Charles do he sends a an, a, an envoy of the, those treacherous people here, here are my advisors they're going to come and and let me let me have them test you first and so they'll come and ask you and then they'll bring the message back to me and so all of Joan's troops are they're so happy because oh we're gonna uh, we're going to finally be able to get our message to Charles and, and, what and instead Joan sees right through them. And refuses to cooperate, refuses to play that game, really. Right. And she remains reverent. She doesn't disrespect them. But you're exactly right, Amy. She sees right through it. And she tells them, she says, they come to the ta- the tavern, the hotel or whatever. 
where they are and say, you know, we're here from the, the Dauphin, you know, tell us what the message is. And then we'll decide from there what we're going to do. And she tells them, I have no message for anyone other than the Dauphin. In other words, I, I, I have a message and it's only for the Dauphin. It's not for you. <laughs> and the, her team, her, you know, her, her, her group is horrified. They're like, we've got, we've been through 10 days of battle of sleeping and snowy ground. And now you're, now you're just sort of like rejecting them when they come. And she, like you said, she saw right through it. She, she told him, she said, well, if you have people that you don't, can you, can we trust them? And they went, well, no. Well, then why would I give them the message? Do you think they're going to repeat the message the way that I. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Yeah. And so she, she shows an, a tremendous amount of courage again. So I, again, I, I, it's, for me, it's hard to imagine. It really is. What kind of courage, if you go all the way from Domremy, through Vaucouleur, through enemy territory, to standing firm in front of the Dauphin's um, treacherous advisors and standing firm, it's just unbelievable mm-hmm. character. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, so, so we're kind of left at that point in our reading right now to where, oh, she, they, but they moved. So the, the, I guess the final point is that the fan was impressed. He was impressed and they moved her to the castle. So she's getting closer to him and we're going to find out now. Leave this as a, leave this as a little bit of a, uh, something in anticipation. There's a secret. So this is very important. Joan says, that there's something that the Dauphin needs to know, that wants to know. And I have the answer and I'm going to tell him something that will convince him that I'm right. And we don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is, but wow. we don't know what it, we don't know what it is. And this is a very true story. It's a very big part of Joan's story is the conversation she's going to have with Charles that will completely light up his life but that's going to be coming up i can't tell that yeah. story right now <laughs> and, and on that cliffhanger <laughs> uh, we'll we'll take a look at our reflective questions for this week and um and then we'll close it out so okay. you want to well, give us yours sure here's now what i what i want to do real quickly is uh because my reflective questions have to do with comparing ourselves what i want you to do is kind of do some reflection uh, comparing yourself, uh, c- comparing Joan to the Paladin, and where you fit in that continuum, and 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 I think it's a very it's an exercise I went through when I read. So let me read these two these two quotes real quickly. So here's Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc says to rescue France, and it is appointed that I shall do it. For no one else in the world, neither kings nor dukes nor any other, can recover the kingdom of France, and there is no help but in me. That's Joan of Arc. Now, here's the paladin. So the paladin says on the way to through enemy territory, when he's talking to the sir, he says, I shall not be at my best being but a common soldier. Still, the country will hear of me. If I were where I belong, if I were in the place of Lahire or Centre or the bastard of Orléans, well, I say nothing. I'm not of the talking kind like Noel Rangesson and his sort. I thank God. But it will be something. I take it a novelty in this world, I should say, to raise the fame of a private soldier above theirs. 
and extinguish the glory of their names with its shadow. So the paladin is going to extinguish the heroes of France with his shadow of greatness. And in the meantime, Jones said, by the way, I'm the only person that can save France. So what I'd ask the listeners to do is just kind of compare compare those two characters and maybe do a reflection on let's let's be honest. Let's let's get honest with ourselves um, and think about where we stand in that continuum between the paladin and Joan and what we might need to think about in terms of moving ourselves closer to Joan. Ooh, that's a good exercise, Walter. <laughs> I look forward to doing that. Well, maybe not, maybe not so much, but it needs to be done. Uh, okay, my question is to describe the beginning of a memorable journey that you've taken. So now we're, we're getting back to crossing the threshold. So think about that journey. How did you prepare for it? And what were you feeling? Excitement, nervousness, maybe even a little fear of the unknown? How did these emotions heighten the experience of the journey for you? So Awesome. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Another great discussion uh, with a great topic, our heroine, Joan of Arc, and the uh-huh. incredible feats that um, she's only beginning to accomplish for her country. Well, she's, she's in the castle now. She's in, she's in the presence of the, uh, she's close to the Dauphin. She's getting ready to actually meet him. So keep up with your reading because it, it, we're not even close to peaking on the action yet. <laughs> no, not, not by any means. So, And speaking of reading, our homework for next week is to read in book two, chapters six through 10. So book two, chapters six through 10. But of course, do join us again, even if you don't get through the reading. Well, it's been great. And I look forward to seeing you again next week, Walter. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. And we wish you a most blessed week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. First Steps, Brancaster by Malcolm Geit. This is the day to leave the dark behind you. Take the adventure, step beyond the hearth. Shake off at last the shackles that confined you and find the courage for the forward path. You yearned for freedom through the long night watches. The day has come and you are free to choose. Now is your time and season. Companion still, by your familiar crutches and leaning on the props you hope to lose, you step outside and widen your horizon.